the O'Pilots playing tales. The MiG 007. It's February 1956 and there's a new kid on the block. His NATO name is Fishbed and he comes from the Mikoyan Gurevich Design Bureau of the Soviet Union who call him the MiG-21. This triumph for the Soviet Union was to become the most produced supersonic jet aircraft in aviation history and the most produced combat aircraft since the Korean War. A Mach 2 capable fighter it was the most successful of a series of supersonic fighters that the Soviets produced, such as the Sukhoi Su-7 Fitter and the Sukhoi Su-9 Fishpot. It had a distinctive, highly swept delta wing platform and a central intake with a pointed shock cone in the nose for the single Termansky R-25 after-burning turbojet giving it the capability of achieving Mach 2.05 at high level, as well as over 600 knots at medium level. Armed with a 23mm cannon carrying 200 rounds and initially the K-5 Alkali beam riding missile, it would soon be replaced by the K-55 semi-active radar guided homing missile. It also had a pair of K-13 Atoll infrared homing air-to-air missiles, which was a reverse-engineered copy of the American Sidewinder missile. The story of how the latest top-secret American Sidewinder ended up in Soviet hands is worthy of a little side note. In 1958, the People's Republic of China, on the Chinese mainland, were having a little crisis with the Republic of China on the island of Taiwan, and there was a fair bit of military activity in the Taiwan Straits that separate them. President Eisenhower responded to a request from the Taiwan government for assistance by deploying, amongst other things, aircraft to Taiwan. Under a secret effort called Operation Black Magic, the U.S. Navy rapidly modified some of the Nationalist Chinese Air Force F-86 Super Sabres to carry the new AIM-9 Sidewinder missiles, which would give them a distinct edge over the Soviet-made MiG-15s and MiG-17s that the PRC Chinese flew. The world was about to see the very first use of guided missiles in air-to-air combat. On the 24th of September 1958, a group of MiG-17s cruised past some sabres, only to find themselves under missile attack. There was an inconclusive end to this engagement, but only a few days later, 32 Sabres clashed with over a 100 MiGs in a series of engagements, and around nine of the MiGs were shot down, the first missile kills to be scored in combat. A byproduct of this engagement was that one of the American Sidewinder missiles became lodged in the rear fuselage of a MiG-17 without the warhead detonating. The aircraft successfully returned to its base and the Chinese were able to extract the missile intact. 
they forwarded it to the Russians, and a Soviet design team led by Ivan Tolopov carefully dismantled it. The Soviets were impressed by the simplicity and effectiveness of the Sidewinder and made their own version that would eventually end up on the wing of the MiG-21. This wasn't the last Sidewinder that they got hold of, but that, as they say, is another story. The new MiG-21 had Western Air Forces worried. They didn't know much about this new fighter, but it was rumoured to be highly manoeuvrable and well-armed in addition to being fast. Indeed, lightly loaded, it could achieve a climb rate of over 45,000 feet a minute. Intelligence agencies' lights burned through many a night as analysts pored over grainy photographs in an attempt to discover the fighter's capabilities. Then came the Vietnam War, and American forces were going to find out firsthand how the aircraft performed. In December 1966, the MiG-21 pilots of the 921st Fighter Regiment downed 14 F-105 Thunder Chiefs without loss. Something needed to be done. In fact, something was being done. The year before, in Israel, a plan was being hatched. The Israeli Air Force was already deeply concerned about the MiG-21, which had recently appeared in the Egyptian order of battle when the Soviets let them have 34 aircraft. In addition, Syria had 18 and Iraq 10. At that time, the United States was refusing to supply the Israelis with any arms, so they had looked towards the United Kingdom and France to provide them with equipment. The French sold them voitures, supermistères, and 72 of the excellent Mirage III fighters. But with the Soviets arming the Arabs with their latest fighters, the Israelis were still very concerned. The Israeli Air Force commander, Isa Weissman, approached Mia Amit, the head of Mossad, to discuss the subject. Weissman, who had led the IAF since 1958, recalled the defection to Israel of an Egyptian pilot, Mahmoud Abbas Hilmi, who unexpectedly landed with a Czech-built Yak training aircraft on one of the IAF's bases. However, the MiG-21 was a much more sophisticated aircraft than the Yak, and Weissman knew that the Arab air forces were tightly safeguarding its secrets. Despite this, Weissman asked Amit if it would be possible to get him a MiG-21. Israel had already tried to put its hands on MiG aircraft and their wealth of technological secrets in the late 1950s, but to no avail. With the arrival of this new advanced Soviet fighter, the situation had become more urgent. Although Amit's first reaction was that this was truly a mission impossible, he promised Weissman that his people would do what they could. Rehavi Avadi, who led Mossad's spy department, or more correctly, Humint, or Human Intelligence, was appointed to look at the task and command a highly dangerous attempt called Operation Diamond. Initially, Mossad tried an operation in Egypt, led by their agent Jean Thomas. 
The team tried to pay an Egyptian fighter pilot $1 million to steal a plane and fly it to Israel. The plan, however, backfired when the pilot reported Thomas to the Egyptian authorities, resulting in his arrest and subsequent hanging, along with two others. The second attempt took place in Iraq and failed when Mossad operatives were forced to assassinate two Iraqi pilots to silence them after they refused to cooperate. The third attempt came about when the Mossad office chief in Tehran said that he knew of a Jewish Iraqi businessman called Youssef Shamash, who, although much disliked by Mossad, was willing to play a vital role in the operation. Yusuf was an entirely unpleasant person. People cringed from him and thought him a greedy and boastful man who wouldn't recoil from any deed for enough money. The pieces started to fall into place when it was discovered that Yusuf's lover was an Iraqi girl who just happened to be the sister-in-law of an Iraqi Air Force pilot called Munia Redfa. Redfa was an Assyrian Christian who was frustrated at his lack of progress within the Iraqi military because of his Christian roots. He suffered from religious and ethnic discrimination, had been passed over for promotion, and was being forced by his commanders to live far away from his family in Baghdad. In addition, Redfa was feeling remorse for his part in the bombing of Iraqi Kurdish villages. Unlike many human assets, Redfer wasn't too interested in money, but wanted a better future for himself and his family. A Mossad agent who had served as an IAF pilot started periodically meeting Redfer in various European capitals to establish his bona fide, and it was agreed that the pilot was not only genuine, but willing to defect with a MiG-21, so long as his family could escape as well. Redfer put in an application to fly the new MiG fighters, and in the meantime he was secretly brought to Israel so that he could see the Hatzor Air Force Base where he would land. The risks were explained to him. You know how dangerous this is going to be. The flight is 900 kilometres. If your own colleagues guess what you're up to, they may send planes to blow you out of the sky. If they don't succeed, the Jordanians may try. Your only hope is to remain calm and follow this route. They do not know it, we do. If you lose your nerve, you're a dead man. Once you've left your ordinary flight path, there's no turning back. Redfer seemed to understand and simply said, I will bring you the plane. He was even taken up in a Mirage 3 to practice landing at the base. In addition, he was trained in the different ways of encoding letters and other methods of spycraft that he would need to use. In due course, Mossad received a letter. I have asked for a transfer from the hospital, code word for the Kirkuk Air Base in northern Iraq, which I currently attend to the internal ward, meaning Rashid Air Base near Baghdad, and they have approved it but the transfer will be executed in July. In the same month, I will bring the penicillin, meaning MiG-21, from the pharmacy. The operation 
was on. Some of Redford's family, still unaware of the plan that they were involved in, were sent to Europe as a staging post before being rehomed in Israel, and when all the preparations were complete, at a prearranged time, the Israeli Arabic language station played a song Mahabtain, Mahabtain. It was a welcome greeting in Arabic and the sign to Redfer that Israel was expecting him. Awaiting the arrival of the MiG-21 was Ran Pekka, one of the most decorated IAF fighter pilots and the commander of a Mirage squadron. He was one of two Mirages on alert for an event they had yet to be told about. For many hours he sat in his cramped cockpit until, unexpectedly, he was stood down, only to be put back on alert the next day and then the next. He was bored and frustrated, but completely unaware that Redford's first attempt to defect had been ruined when he had to turn back with an unexpected fault. It must have been ghastly for the Iraqi pilot, but eventually, two days later, on August the 16th, 1966, Redfer again got the chance to fly. When the moment was right, he unexpectedly turned hard westwards. Ignoring his Iraqi controller's radio calls, he dived to low level and set off over Iraq and Jordan, heading for Israel. For a nerve-wracking hour, he kept calm, and with his fuel gauges getting lower and lower, he eventually found himself approaching the border. In his Mirage cockpit, Ranpecker's long wait was over. He was scrambled and told to prepare for combat, but at the same time to hold his fire unless instructed. The two Mirages launched and headed out to intercept their target. As they closed on the aircraft, they were amazed to discover that it was a MiG-21. With no direct radio contact, Ran used hand signals to direct the MiG to follow him to Hatzor Air Force Base and land, which it did, desperately short of fuel. That same day, Mossad agents hired two large vans and picked up the remaining members of the pilot's family who had left Baghdad ostensibly to have a picnic. They were driven to the Iranian border and guided across by anti-Iraqi Kurdish guerrillas. Safely in Iran, a helicopter collected them and flew them to an airfield from which a passenger plane took them to Israel. The next day, to an astonished world press, the defection of the Iraqi pilot with his MiG was announced. The Russians were furious. The secrets of their new fighter were out, and they ferociously threatened the Israelis, demanding their aircraft back. Instead, the IAF flew the MiG in training missions against their Mirages so they could evaluate the MiG and its systems. The IAF's chief test pilot, Danny Shapira, undertook mock dogfights and he reached the conclusion that the MiG-21's legendary reputation was not entirely correct. The rear part of the MiG-21 was its Achilles heel due to its design which placed the aircraft's fuel tank with compressed air and oxygen tanks together making a vulnerable cluster of systems. 
They also realized that the Mirage was a much more sophisticated and effective weapon system than the Russian MiG, which had limited visibility from the cockpit, control difficulties at high speed, plus an unorganized and cluttered cockpit. It also had poor maneuverability at low speeds. However, with every passing day, they were more and more surprised at its high usability levels. It reminded them of a reliable Volkswagen car. Other countries were eager to get their hands on the aircraft, and eventually the Prime Minister agreed to let the Americans take a look, and it was duly shipped to Area 51 as part of Project Have Donut. Shortly after, the IAF were allowed to purchase F-4 Phantoms. The United States designated the aircraft the YF-110, and the CIA Foreign Technology Division, AFFTC, SAC, NATC, TAC, NASIC, and a host of others wanted to play. In the end, 102 flights were conducted against Phantoms, Thunder Chiefs, F 111s, F 100s, F 104s, and F 5s, just to name a few. The MiG turned out to be amazingly reliable and only 11 sorties were lost due to its problems. The US jets didn't come even close to that. The main deficiency in the MiG turned out to be poor visibility, very slow engine response, low altitude transonic vibration, difficulty with formation flying, flying in turbulence and night flying. In addition, it was expected to be easy to kill due to non-sealing tanks, an unprotected engine, and a very light metal structure. What's more, its radar was very easily decoyed. On the other hand, it required very little maintenance. It had an HG load factor, required no stability augmentation, and was hard to keep sight of. Against the F-4, for example, it had less acceleration below 30,000 feet, particularly in military power, and its airspeed bled off quickly when turning hard below 15,000 feet. So, whilst the MiG had better instantaneous turn rates, if the engagement was kept low, the F-4 could prevail in a sustained fight. All the questions about this new fighter had been answered, and when disseminated to the pilots who were going to fight it, it gave them an enormous advantage. During the air battles over the Golan Heights in 1967, the IAF Mirages took down six Syrian MiG-21s without loss, and in the Six-Day War, the IAF destroyed a total of 148 MiG-21s, many in Edoware combat. When Redford's MiG-21 was returned to Israel, it was given the serial number 007 and served with the IAF before being retired to the Israeli Air Force Museum in Hatzelim, where it can still be seen.
If you enjoyed this story, then please take the time to leave us a review on your podcaster of choice. It's a great way to say thanks for the time and effort put into the Plain Tales. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. <laughs>